Call Real Podcast number four. This week on the podcast, we have a dear friend who we met in Kyrgyzstan. He's a missionary, adventure enthusiast, and he does development work in rural communities around the country. We are so honored and so excited for this one. Thank you for tuning in. Roll it. As listeners, we hope to expand your knowledge of what it means to live overseas and what it means to be immersed in a new culture. We also hope that you get really excited and inspired about all the cool adventures and things this world has to offer. Tom, welcome to the podcast. We are so stoked to have you. It's been a while that we've seen you and caught up, so it's, this will be a great time to catch up and hear about your life. Yeah, man, I'm stoked to hear from you guys and catch up. So tell us about kind of your, your backstory. You grew up in Minnesota. How long were you there before you decided that you wanted to move overseas? So when I, I mean, part of it actually goes back to my freshman year of college. Um, so anyways, I grew up in Minnesota. Most of my life was spent there. I was actually born in Wisconsin. Yeah, but my freshman year of university, so my sister was part of a program called Youth with a Mission, and she really wanted to push me to go do a DTS. So a discipleship training school. She thought it'd do me well. And I kept saying no. And it wasn't that I wasn't a believer or anything, but I just, it didn't interest me as much. So finally, she persuaded me to kind of do like a gap semester almost, which I did. And to which afterwards, I felt like God was pushing me into living overseas. But then at the same time, he said, not yet. So I went back to school for actually only a year. And then God said it was time to go. So quarantine, like what do you think people would find the most interesting thing that you did during quarantine? Yeah, so part of quarantine right now, uh, where I live, uh, my wife just came back um, from Canada, where she's from. And so now we're doing just two weeks of social distancing, quarantining. So we just thought we'd road trip and camp and hang out and stuff because we can. And I mean, the country that we live in, it used to be really restricted. They had like military and stuff who blocked off cities just to kind of prevent the virus. And so now that things are opening up again, we just it's nice to run away sometimes and just hang out, go snowshoeing or whatever. What are some of your favorite adventures to do together? Favorite adventures. I mean, we definitely like hiking. We definitely enjoy. I mean, we also enjoy part of where we live. I mean, like city is also full of culture. So it's really fun to also enjoy kind of, I don't want to say urban adventures. Yeah. Sounds very stereotypical, but yeah, I mean, we love like that kind of thing. It's not really an adventure. We love antiquing because there's tons of sweet stuff here, like old Soviet stuff that you can get. And then, but we also, I mean, rock climb, mountaineer, yeah, just different things like that. We kind of have this happy middle ground where we live of getting to have a great city to live in, but then we also get to do a lot of stuff in the outdoors. When was the moment that you knew Kyrgyzstan was home? And why did you pick Kyrgyzstan? I guess, how did you even land there, first of all? So actually, how I landed here was really funny. So when I went back into Youth with a Mission, I was doing a course on like strategic work and how do we reach Muslims. And it was really funny because I had to do this internship and I wanted to work in this really volatile country and a war broke out and I just, it wasn't possible, which I totally respect people who live there saying, no, we don't want you to come or we want you to come, but it's like, we just can't host a new person yet. So anyway, it was just through mutual friends. I kind of wound up in Kyrgyzstan, which was pretty sweet, but it was really funny because I got an email from my friend Jay and he just said, whatever you do, make sure you get a work visa in the airport. He's like, tattoo it on your arm if you have to. Like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, it's good work visa. Like, I can do that. That's not hard. And I flew into like, a really tiny airport in the south, and we had to unload the plane ourselves. This is like the best thing ever. It was next level. Like, they 
they kind of like threw everything into a dump truck and then we had to like take care of the dump truck with all of our luggage and just like it was next level of just realizing i'm not in the u.s anymore and i've been overseas but like this was a whole different ball game you know and it was funny so i'm waiting in line waiting in line and then i get into an argument with border officials about my visa because they just want to give me a tourist visa because that's what most people do and like, no, no, I need a work visa. He's like, no, like, this is all I can give you. I'm like, no, I need a work visa. And we just kept going back and forth and kind of broken English. And then until finally he stands up, grabs my passport, slams the stamp on it and says in like a really thick Russian accent. And he's got, you know, like the big hat, like he looks like a Soviet guard. He's like, welcome to Kyrgyzstan. Like, okay, I guess I don't really have a choice at this point. <laughs> it's kind of an entertaining moment of the former Soviet Union colliding with my world. Yeah, so when you first came to Kyrgyzstan, then were you planning on staying there for a long time? Or were you just kind of putting some feelers out and thinking and just getting a feel for the country? Mm, I was kind of in between. So I kind of enjoyed, like, I mean, I found that I really loved Kyrgyzstan. I definitely still had a heart for this other country that was um, going through a war. Yeah, it was really torn. But eventually I just sort of fell in love with Kyrgyzstan, especially through a particular experience with some friends who were, yeah, like off-roading maybe six or seven months into me being Kyrgyzstan. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, probably a hundred miles from the nearest village even. And yeah, we just were hanging out with some local shepherds and I mean, it was fun because it was nighttime and we spent the night with them and they made us, you know, like local dishes. They actually slaughtered a sheep for us, which is the biggest honor in Kyrgyz society. So that was really cool. And it was, this family was probably quite poor actually, but they were really excited to host us. And it was really fun because uh, that night, so we're all whipping out our like, you know, four or $500 town sleeping bags to like getting cozied up in the yurt and stuff. And like the dad of the family comes in to the yurt from their other little like tent thing and he has just this like mound of something of like leather and kind of of wool it was probably like 20 30 pounds i'm like what the heck and he just like drops it and he just says i, I see you all have like sleeping bags if somebody wants to use mine you're more than welcome <laughs> that was a really cool moment of hospitality but when he dropped it like fleas came out and just dust was everywhere because i mean this thing was like used by lewis and clark oh <laughs> it was gosh. old and so Nobody slept in it. We were tempted, but we decided we didn't really want to at the same time. Because once the guy left the year, we were very honoring about it. Um, my buddy Jay slept on it, to which he still woke up really itchy. And even just that night, like, realizing how much I loved the country I was in. Because a goat came in our year in the middle of the night and was trampling a friend of mine, but he slept through it. And I had to, like, grab it by the horns, like, straddle it and get it out, which is not normal, but it happened. It was kind of just a cool moment of, like, just crazy. I love how unexpected things can be so it was just really enjoyable in that way so for those who don't really know like what a yurt is or like what a night in a yurt is like can you explain a little bit what a yurt is and like an experience in a yurt is yeah for sure so it's like a semi a yurt is like a semi-permanent structure uh traditionally it's made of wood wool uh no nails no screws anything like that it's all uh, tied together for the most part so that way people can pick it up move um it's meant that you can like kind of pack it up and leave. They say you can fit it all on one camel, which is crazy because it's a lot of weight. It's just like sleeping almost in a really nice tent. <laughs> it's But it's kind of cool because yurts have existed for thousands of years. They're still one of the strongest structures known to man. I have a friend who's been in 60, 70 mile an hour winds in one, and it was perfectly fine, like no problem. And so it's just like thinking about things like that. It's kind of cool how there's this really traditional structure and it's a circle, by the way. Really traditional structure that actually is just really durable, well-designed, well-made. I think it's actually a cool reflection of how God has given a lot of us like intuition and things like that. 
So can you talk a little bit about your transition moving overseas? What was that like for you? So, I mean, part of it actually stems back to that second year of uh, university when I went back and I got an email about coming back to join Youth with a Mission and to do yes, a course on like strategic missions work and then consider living overseas. And it's really funny because the people who invited me actually did not expect me to do it overseas. They expected me to go to the Lawman base in the U.S. and consider living there, um, which I did not know. So I instead did the complete opposite. But I was really torn because I felt like God had led me back to school and I was making some really awesome relationships. I had some really close friends and I went and talked to my buddy, John. I just said like, hey, I feel like God has given me two options. And I don't really know what to do with this because I feel like God usually makes it very clear with the Holy Spirit, which one to do. And he showed me that maybe I had a flaw in my theology. He just said, why doesn't God give you options? Like, why can't he? You know, like your faith means more when you're able to make your own decisions, not when we're drones, that kind of thing. So actually through that, I just... I still didn't really know what to do. And so I just kind of decided I spent time praying and stuff, but I just felt like there was no clear direction. So when I finally made a decision, like I definitely realized how it was one that kind of I own more now that it was one that was not forced upon me. So it's kind of a cool moment. Yeah. That my buddy kind of guided me along with, with um, just saying like, no, you have flawed theology, man, which is great to have friends like that. You know, we can just call you out. So then kind of just transitioning, it was really gradual. Uh, yeah, I lived in a larger, more Western Muslim country for a while, learned a ton about Islam, especially. Um, and I wound up, yeah, doing a one-year internship in Kyrgyzstan, uh, doing development work, uh, learning how to share with Muslims, uh, living with a host family, which is pretty awesome, exhausting, if I'm fully honest, but it was really good. And just like those experiences kind of shaped who I am and then yeah, within a few years, I mean, I definitely considered Kyrgyzstan like it is my home. How long did it take you to become fluent in Kyrgyz? Yeah, so, I mean, you're never done learning the language. Right. I'm still not learning English, but I would say within a year and a half, two years, somewhere in there. And usually that's rather normal if you're doing around 25, 30 hours a week of language learning and living like really in depth with a host family and whatnot. But it was kind of cool because one of the first moments I had was with my host family also was living actually lived with two host families, which was kind of cool to compare the differences of kind of the cultural differences of a host family in the South versus a host family in the North. Uh, but the host family in the North, he was a house church pastor, a really cool guy. Uh, so maybe six, eight months into language learning, we had like a two hour conversation about theology, which super broken is actually about the topic just of drinking. Cause in Kyrgyzstan, uh, drinking is quite a taboo topic amongst believers. And so my host dad, he's a very, very charismatic in his theology and I'm somewhere in the middle, but we were talking about it. And I just said like, I actually don't see anything wrong with drinking. However, culturally, like it's, I definitely understand why it's um, considered inappropriate and why believers tend to not do it. And he kind of shared uh, like, yeah, I actually think, well, cause most people actually, from my experience say it's just wrong. Personally, I don't think it's wrong. I actually enjoy having a glass of wine or beer or whiskey with my wife, you know, like depending on the evening or the weekend. But um, he just said, yeah, like that's fine if you have that opinion. But the reality is like you kind of also submit to the culture that you live in. And it was really cool because it was a completely open like conversation. Yeah, we weren't debating or anything. But just the fact that I hit this point with language, maybe six, eight months into language learning, it was really cool. I mean, it was still super broken. I'm not going to deny that. And after two hours, my brain was just completely fried. But I mean, it was a cool experience just to realize some of those milestones that you have. And so once you hit those, then you you realize you want more. But then at the same time, you also realize like how far you've come. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So do you have, you talked a little bit about like cultural, like submitting to the culture that you're in. Do you have like an embarrassing story of like cultural ignorance where you just totally did the wrong thing and you had no idea? Uh, yeah, I have tons of those. I think everyone gets them actually. <laughs> when I was living with a host family in the South, so much more conservative as well. I had to go somewhere on a Saturday morning. I was all packed up, had everything to go. And I was just going for, I think, maybe not even a night. I don't even remember. But I had to run out the door and I forgot something. And in Kyrgyzstan, you always take off your shoes. Like, no question about it. Which, I mean, even in the U.S., a lot of, like, I grew up taking off my shoes. But, you know, if you have to run in and grab your keys, grab a water bottle or whatever, like, who cares, you know? And I had this moment where I, like, crossed into the door. I was like, I gotta run. And, it's, you know, you have that half a second to make a decision. And you're like, I would normally do this, but I don't think I should. But then I thought, but nobody will know. And somebody did know. <laughs> uh, nobody saw it or anything. And I was living on the second floor of this house. And so... I like kind of like tiptoed up and like grabbed my stuff and then kind of ran back down. And I think somehow somebody found out, maybe I left a little bit of like a boot print. I'm not really sure. And I got a huge scolding from my host brother who was younger than me, telling me how much I like dishonored his mom. And it was totally my fault. Like I have no denying of that. And I didn't really know what to say. I think I actually lied, which I feel really bad about because I was like so ashamed, which is also a big thing in Kyrgyz culture, which is totally what he was doing. Like he was shaming me for a good reason, actually, because, you know, your house is very special. It's clean and you don't do that. And I did that. I've never done that since. Uh, in my own personal home now, I've done it, um, but I've never done it in a local person's house. Taught you quickly. But it's funny because now I have a really close buddy and he... Uh, I was asking him, like, what do you do if you forget, like, your, something in your house, you know? And he's like, oh, I never know what to do. And he's local. And he's like, I actually kind of, like, crawl on my knees <laughs> so you can keep his shoes on. I was like, what a bro. That's totally what I do now, too, actually. Like, I've done it before as well. Like, I'm like, that makes sense. Just so you can, you know, go to the kitchen counter and grab what you need or whatever. So that's a big it. deal there. Wow. Yeah, being clean is super important. <laughs> So are there a lot of those things, like you said that you submit to the culture, like are there a lot of those kind of like unwritten rules that you've had to learn over the years and kind of how is that process of just diving into a different culture, but also not kind of enforcing your own culture, but really submitting to a different one? How was that for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting too, because part of it is no matter how hard I try, I'll never be 100% curious. Like it's, I could wear all the traditional clothes, which people don't even wear here unless it's like a holiday for something. You know, I can wear like the traditional hat, the kalpak and everything, but no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be curious. And that's okay. Like, that's not a bad thing. But yeah, it's kind of hard to submit to culture learn the culture, but also be reminded that I will not be forever curious, I guess. But there's tons of things that you have to learn, you have to consider. And a lot of it, you actually just learn naturally. So some people will explain different things to you, which is really good the first times you show up. So a lot of time people eat meals on the floor here and they have something called a doster cone, which is like a giant, I don't want to say picnic mat because people do it in their homes. Um, but it's, yeah. So it's kind of like a tablecloth laid out in front of you and you never go over it. Like you never walk over it. You never touch it with your feet, that kind of thing. And it's things like that that are almost easy to pick up on and figure out because you just realize, oh, nobody's ever done that. Like I've never seen somebody do that. People have also explained that to me. And it makes sense. Like your food is kind of holy. So why would you put your feet there? It's gross. So you kind of learn those things, but then there's a lot more like subconscious things that you start to learn while living overseas and about culture. So people tend to be more quiet in public and I'm American. Americans tend to be loud and boisterous. Like 
and you got to figure out like, oh, people don't actually talk like this. They talk like this here. And unless they're actually angry or, you know, frustrated and stuff. And so you just kind of like pick up on things as you go around the city or around town. Yeah. So that's kind of also the joy of living in a host family. It's definitely a struggle. You definitely have painful moments where you just think like, ah, screw this. And maybe you need to go away for a night or whatever. Spend a night at your director's house. Definitely did that. (laughs) But yeah. So through that, I just kind of, those experiences, I mean, you, you kind of learn them subconsciously just by realizing, observing, thinking, but then also people have to explain them to you. But no matter what, like you want to be honoring towards people. So, you know, greeting your elders with the proper tone of bike, which means older brother, or if they're really old, oxycol, which means the white beard, which I love. And just recognizing, you know, people's like status for being elders or different things like that. Like you just kind of pick up on those things. So. So can you tell me a little bit about what was the process to build cross-cultural relationships and like, how long do you feel like it took for you to get to the point where you were comfortable enough to ask your buddy, right. To be like, Hey, what do you do when you have to go grab your keys? Or what do you do in this situation? Like how long did it take to build relationships like that? Well, it all depends. I think partially on people's different comfort levels, uh, who they know the relationships that they're already given, like when you're set up. So coworkers naturally start to build a quicker relationship with, cause you spend every day life with them. You go around the corner and you get shawarma with them for lunch from the office, things like that. Uh, but building like more in-depth relationships, it definitely takes time, but you can start them off really quickly. So even though I don't know my language helper anymore, I kind of do. I mean, I was at his wedding. So for example, with him, I mean, he kind of introduced me to Kyrgyz society through language learning. And through language learning, I also learned a lot about culture. And I built a lot of depth and relationship with someone like him, even though it was a very, I mean, it was an informal relationship, but it was very like, structured because we met for two hours a day. He would tutor me in Kyrgyz. So you can build relationships in a lot of unique ways. You can also, I mean, just being a foreigner that speaks Kyrgyz is not common. And so even just in that, like you can build a relationship with a taxi driver with the drop of a hat. Like, but in terms of, some of my like really close relationships. I mean, it definitely takes time understanding, bridging the gap with yeah, language learning and cultures. And, you know, it takes patience on both sides, especially with one of us speaking in a different language. Like it definitely takes a ton of effort and you're actually quite tired for the first few years you live overseas. Like that's just a reality. Like you're exhausted. I don't know if you experienced that at all, Dom. <laughs> yes. We were exhausted the first like month because your brain is constantly like subconsciously trying to figure every letter out, all these languages, the different foods and transportation. We were just every night at like five o'clock, we were just dead, just right for bed. And we would sleep for like 11, 12 hours if they would let us, but they wouldn't let us because they wanted to get us on the normal time and try to huh? like adapt to normal life. But we were crazy tired. Yeah. Sorry, Aslan. I know you've had that experience too. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, no, I totally agree. <laughs> Trying to figure out, you know, what does street signs say and what does what does the taxi driver want me to say? And I can't figure it out. And how to get food from the grocery store and what yeah. button to push. Everything's uh, a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like you wouldn't think it's so exhausting to go buy like a sack of potatoes, but it's tiring. Like, you know, and it doesn't even take that long, but in the course of like getting on the bus, going by, you know, your let's say tomatoes, potatoes, and onions, and a little bit of meat or whatever, and you come home, you're like, Okay, I think I either need a cup of coffee or a two-hour nap. You Absolutely, know? yeah. <laughs> Literally. And it's kind of crazy because, I mean, it only took, yeah, it probably took me about two, two and a half years to hit that point where, like, having one-on-one deep conversations or legitimate conversations with friends where I'm not tired afterwards. If, like, if I'm doing fully honest, and sometimes I still get tired. I'm like, 
oh my gosh, like, especially after big events, like weddings, where it's like five, six hours of just like constant simulation, operating in pure Kyrgyz, like, and people are using like ancient words for blessings and stuff. And you're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you try to like figure it all out and stuff. But I mean, it's also just part of the experience, you know, part of the opportunity of getting to live overseas is being exhausted. <laughs> what, is, what would you say is the biggest myth about living overseas or like the biggest myth about Central Asia kind of as a whole? You can do those separately. Like the biggest myth yeah. about living overseas. So I think, especially from a Christian perspective, uh, living overseas, like doing missions work, I think a really big misconception is that I live in a thatched roof house and I wear 20 year old clothes that are like out of date kind of, I don't want to like knock on anyone who ever like came and spoke at my church when I was young. Like that's definitely not what I mean, I mean by that. Uh, but I think in reality is there's a lot of misconceptions about what does it mean to follow Jesus when he calls you to live overseas? You know, for me, I get the joy of living in a place that's like living in like Boulder. I go ice climbing, mountain biking, things like that. Like I get those opportunities still. And that's, and I still like, I give up to live here, but the reality is like God, I don't know. He just, he created us to be certain ways. So he still gives opportunities to be who we are. Like you don't really have to give up who you are to follow God, even overseas. So that's something I really am actually passionate about. And so is my wife. Just, we really want to see people like know that living overseas is so much more than just like, Oh yeah, I just shared Jesus with these 20 people today. Like it's so much more. Like I get to do things that I enjoy still. And, I mean, I have a legitimate job. I sit down and make coffee in the morning. Like it's not as abnormal as people think. But then even living in Central Asia, I think one misconception is how scary it is. So you got Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, like you name it. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I mean, there is a reality. Like I'm not going to deny there is a reality of like security risks, understanding that. Um, But the reality is too, is that you get so much more like living in these countries than just like the little view that you see on CNN or whatever. I think media definitely misrepresents so much of like how amazing these countries are. And like I said, I don't want to downplay like there are very real risks. Um, but there's also just like amazing people, uh, culture. I mean, God is totally at work here. So it's kind of fun to see yeah, the contrast of what maybe like media portrays versus my personal experience. But like I said, I also don't want to downplay it, but Anytime Stan is at the end of a country, I think people kind of get up in arms. And the reality is like most of the Stan countries are actually quite safe. Safe is a relative word, but also at the same time, like it's just an amazing place to be able to be. And even just misconceptions about like the developing world in general, I think poor people, what does it mean for people to be poor, underdeveloped, like living in poverty? You know, Kyrgyzstan, obviously people across the world struggle with like hunger, but Kyrgyzstan's poverty, like most people have bread. Like they're not, they literally, it's not like they literally don't have food. They might not eat that often or they might be malnourished, but you know, a misconception could be like, they need rice now. And it's like, no, they actually, they don't. Like, I just think, yeah, it's kind of a misconception about like, especially what does poverty look like or development work, conditions work. Um, yeah. Cause every country has their own struggles too. Obviously, people in America, they get afraid when they hear like a Stan, you know. So what has like been the biggest surprise with the people who live there, how they have maybe changed the way that maybe you grew up believing or people in America believe they are to be? Like what is one surprise on how you've experienced the people in Central Asia? Hospitality plays such a key role. I think this is an art that we're losing actually in American culture. I love going out with friends, you know, having wings or whatever. But also there's an art of not even just like Thanksgiving dinner, but having friends over on a Friday night 
you know, making a dinner for them, serving them well, opening a bottle of wine or whatever. Like that's very, I would say something kind of ingrained in like American culture historically that I feel like we're losing. Whereas in Central Asia, like that's still very much alive. And even going out, like people will fight over the bill, over who will pay for who, you know, here. And I think that's a really cool example of just like, no, I, I hosted you or I invited you. Therefore, you're my guest. Therefore, you know, it could literally, it could even be going to KFC here. And it's like, no, dude, I'm buying your fried chicken for you today. You know, and that's actually like, a, I mean, it's very real. And I think that's a really, it's not necessarily something different from what I've experienced like growing up. But I think like once you kind of have those experiences and you see people and I mean, you're hosted by people and you realize even people who have much less than you want to host you and it's not wrong to be like, should I give you money? Like that'd be terribly culturally inappropriate here. But like, when people host you, like they, it's genuinely out of a love to like host you as a guest. Yeah, I think that's definitely one. Not only a misconception I grew up with is just something that you don't know unless you experience it or see it yourself. Right, hosting was like their biggest honor that they could do. Mm-hmm. Like a hundred percent was have someone come into their home and treat them to their food and their tea. I just was shocked by how much of an honor it was to have us into their houses. It was. Truly incredible. I had never seen anything like it, for sure. So with my buddy who I'm really close with, who I mentioned, who uh, crawls on his knees so he doesn't get his floor dirty, him and I were just chatting about, uh, he was at a conference or something in Eastern Europe somewhere, and they were talking, like, how do you reach Muslims in general or people's hearts in the modern world? And so there's, you invite them into your home, uh, you share your food with them, but then if you really want to open people's hearts in the modern world, you share the food out of your refrigerator with them. Because that's where the good food is. It's where you keep, you know, your meat, your milk, things like that. And so I thought that was a really good, you know, kind of a reflection of, you don't only share with people, you share the best. So you mentioned earlier that you wake up, make yourself coffee, and you have a job. Tell us about your job in Kyrgyzstan overseas. Yeah, totally. So I work for a non-government organization, an NGO. We do uh, grassroots community development work, which is really focused on how do we get communities to work together uh, to kind of better themselves Um, and there's different spheres like some communities they really need help with special needs kids some communities they really need help with appropriate technology learning about how to build efficient homes and so I mean my work is mainly focused with a really removed section of curious people from like curious in itself actually they live in a more volatile country in Central Asia and we have a primary education initiative with them Uh, it's their literacy rate is less than 1% and really difficult mortality rates. So we're starting with infant mortality rates, sorry. So we're trying to like start a school and a like health education program with them. And so my job is logistics coordination for that. So it's a lot of sitting behind a computer unless I'm actually in the field working, in which case I get to employ my passions about door sports, like base camp management, gear knowledge, stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, like wake up, have coffee, open my computer, especially with COVID. So much is done at home work from home, logistics, figuring out documents, visas, just kind of you name it, prep work that you can think of for expeditions in general. But then also we have an internship program and my wife, Laura, and I, internship coordinators for NGOs, so really wanting to introduce people to Kyrgyz society long-term, working in Kyrgyzstan or just working in Central Asia and with Muslims in general. Something we're really passionate about, kind of even just like sharing right now is I want people to know that living overseas is, like I said, it's not like a... My wife doesn't wear a 20 year old denim skirt and we live in a thatch roof somewhere. Like that's not the case. Like we want to show people really how much opportunity that you can have in living overseas and following God. 
Okay. So you mentioned that you definitely, you do a lot of work behind the computer, but you also lead stuff outside and lead like base camps and expeditions. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what specifically, what does that entail? And maybe what are some of your favorite adventures you've gone on? So one of my favorite ones, I mean, I love the fact that I work with a really unreached people group who's a four days trek away. So it's like three or four days of off-roading in a SUV or like a land cruiser that's totally decked out. And then after that, it's four days of hiking or on horseback to get to them, which it's like kind of the stories I feel like people grow up with sometimes in church of like, I speared an alligator, like, and then I became part of the tribe. And then I was able to share the gospel with them. Like, there's so few like unreached, like areas like that now where you can really have those experiences. I don't want to sound arrogant, but like, you need to be cut out for it. Like, it is not an easy thing, you know? Um, So we have a really all-star team and I love working with them and everyone kind of has their own roles you know, so mine is more like base camp and stuff, um, especially getting Kyrgyz, ethnic Kyrgyz people to work with the Kyrgyz people we're trying to reach, and bringing local believers with us, uh, development work. So we have people who are actually trained in like medicine and stuff, trying to work with local doctors, things like that. And it's really fun, like getting to take care of those things. And then just the fact that like my hobbies, my passions, like I get to utilize them uh, for work, which is something not everyone has that blessing of. So I try not to take it for granted. doesn't mean it's not exhausting, you know, after hiking for 10, 12 hours, you don't really want to be in charge of telling people to set up tents and stuff, unless you're backpacking with your wife and you're just trying to take it easy and stuff. Cause then you don't need to tell anyone to do anything. Whereas, you know, you get up at dawn, eat quick, hike, and then, you know, you stop once or twice and then you get going again. And then it's, you know, it's kind of fun because you also have like this whole train of like horses with equipment and stuff too and following you and like you feel like you're an old school trader or something like that, uh, which is totally how people actually trade in this, like in that part of the world. Like, you know, people cruise around on horses and they have a donkey behind them filled with whatever and then they trade with people. And I mean, but that's really also a reflection of really rural areas, not necessarily urban areas because urban areas as well are, I mean, you can have coffee, you can you know, go out for French food if you want or whatever in Kyrgyzstan. Like there's tons of opportunity, like I said. But for adventure in itself, I'm really blessed. Like I have a Wednesday night mountain biking group where we go out and have kebabs afterwards, ride for like an hour and a half, two hours, and we kind of downhill on some sheep trails and some shepherd trails close to Bishkek. And then there's tons of different areas where, yeah, we just get to do, like, I just feel so blessed because it is like living in Colorado almost. I have the mountains out my back door pretty much. Uh, I go mountain biking, like I said, ice climbing, rock climbing, like you name it. Probably we do it or we try to do it. Um, doesn't mean we're good at it. And I mean, definitely like my favorite sport is ice climbing, hands down. It's just so fun because it's also an experience so few people have, like being able to climb waterfalls and even just getting to do it in Kyrgyzstan is unique in itself because the whole culture of like ice climbing in the outdoors world is there's a lot of people. There's not a lot of people who do it, but areas to find are where there's not a lot of people is really difficult in the West or in like Europe. So in Kyrgyzstan, where there's virtually no one, there are places in the U.S. where you wait in line to go climb one single pitch of ice. Whereas in Kyrgyzstan, like my friends and I just drive, find some waterfalls or some shoots of ice and we go for it. So it's pretty awesome that we get to do things like that. Can you explain what ice climbing is in more detail? Because I feel like I hear climbing a waterfall and that just, I, what? Yes. I've seen some more details, <laughs> please. Yeah, so you absolutely, so you have like, so first off, I mean, you have your typical harness, ropes, things that you would have for rock climbing carabiners. But then instead of, um, so like in the ice itself, you put it in like a screw 
and the screw you lock what's called a quick draw and then you put your ropes for it so that way you have like some safety every four or five meters the one rule of ice climbing is don't fall with rock climbing you can take a fall and it's okay and it's really it can, in some ways it can be even graceful even flying eight nine ten meters um but ice climbing you have these sharp screws that you screw into the ice you have what's called crampons which are on your boots um and they have like these teeth that knock into the ice and you kick in and in and they hold in really well. And then you also have ice tools, which are kind of like ice picks. And people actually, like in videos or movies, I feel like you see people like slam it into the ice and that's actually not the case. You actually kind of like gently tap it in and it stays in and like even having half an inch into the ice, like that's more than enough to hold your weight because ice is an incredibly strong um, like formation in general. Um, so, so as you go, yeah, you put in these screws and somebody follows and you have kind of like typical commands that you would find in rock climbing with like belaying and stuff. And then as you kind of just move your way up, yeah, you just use the tools and you kind of alternate between your feet and your arms and you, like I said, you don't slam it into the ice. I mean, optimal temperatures are when it's like just above freezing, which sounds really cold, but it's not that bad because then the ice is really soft and it doesn't take much effort. But when it's really cold, then you have to like slam your tool in and then the ice explodes and then it like hits your face or your friend's faces and stuff. And I mean, it's fun, but also in terms of climbing, I think it's the most dangerous. So, I mean, I had a buddy fall last year, ice climbing like seven or eight meters. And that was scary because he was putting in like a quick draw and that's where you have the most protection right when you like clip in but he didn't have it clipped yet. And so he fell like the distance of multiple screws. I guess it's hard to like maybe picture, but he fell maybe, yeah, like eight, 10 meters. Uh, and I was belaying him and he, I mean, he was fine, but it was scary because the one rule of ice climbing, like I said, is don't fall. And it was ugly. Like he did like three or four somersaults down the waterfall and like, I mean, there was blood and stuff and <laughs> we had a good laugh about it afterwards. Um, Cause that's kind of what you do is you just laugh it off. But then you also have this realization of what just happened because you have dozens of sharp objects flying down a waterfall, <laughs> you know, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was a completely new waterfall that we hadn't climbed before. So it's a super <laughs> fun sport. I highly recommend anyone like, and I, I love sharing it. So when people, when guests come, I have extra boots and crampons. I love to share like those sports aren't meant to be hoarded. They're meant to be shared in my opinion. Uh, maybe not with everyone, but I definitely love sharing them. <laughs> Such a thrill. With these podcasts, we like to challenge our guests to encourage someone that they love and also to share the podcast with them. So I want to give you a chance to encourage someone that you love and then share the podcast with them. Yeah, I'd just like to give a shout out, I guess, to my friend Derek. Uh, he's a youth pastor in Minnesota, a good friend of mine. Yeah, I just want to encourage him and the work they're doing at their church and stuff. Yeah, it's really cool just the way that they've been working with youth and the way that they are sharing with them and discipling people. So yeah, I guess with him, I just love to share that with him. And then also I'll share it with him, the podcast itself. Perfect. Sweet. Another thing that we like to incorporate into every episode are these two questions. And the first one says, what aspect of your personality do you feel adds the most value to the world? Not taking yourself too seriously. I would say like, of course, there are very serious times in life, you know, and you don't want to joke around too much. Uh, but just like looking back at, especially like my work overseas and some of my coworkers and my friends, we enjoy what we do. Uh, we do take it very seriously. There's times to be able to sprinkle humor throughout and just do it also and just enjoy it and enjoy like the processes and stuff. Laughter is a really powerful tool. Uh, just thinking about, yeah, just how important it is to, of course, be serious. Like I'm not putting that aside, but just how, how you can really not take yourself too seriously and also be serious at the same time. Yeah, I love that. That's something that I definitely struggle with. 
is sometimes I take myself way too seriously, but you're right. Laughter is so important and it's so cool to just, I think that's so crazy that you went ice climbing with this guy and he fell and you laughed about it afterwards. (laughs) You know, obviously these are super serious things, but if we let every single thing in life just always be serious and we'd never be able to find joy or, you know, get through really hard or painful things. So yeah, I think that's beautiful. The second question that we like to ask is when do you feel like the most authentic version of yourself? I mean, I think that actually definitely fits into with just not taking yourself too seriously. Uh, it's kind of in those moments of, I mean, being serious, maybe you're in a meeting or whatever, and still there's opportunities to laugh and smile with your friends. Uh, so thinking of, especially like in outdoor sports, like with my friends, like laughing about, you know, my friend almost tumbling to his death down a waterfall. I think those are actually really genuine moments of who we are, uh, of just laughing it off partially because you realize he just escaped some really dangerous uh, scenario, but also just, yeah, like it's really genuine in those moments. Cause you also realize like how close you are with certain friends. And yeah, just, I think I'm really like when I have those opportunities, especially in outdoor sports and sharing those, whether it be in the work capacity or in my like leisure capacity. Yeah. I just think sprinkled humor throughout life is really genuinely like where you see who more, more of who I am. Full joy. Always. I try. Love that about you. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about just your journey, your life overseas. We really appreciate it. And it really gets me excited to go back out. And we are inspired all over again. And we hope that everyone else is too who is listening. So thank you. We appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was really enjoyable. All right, Tom. Much love. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to our fourth episode Really appreciate all of you. If you haven't already, go follow us on our Instagram at callitreal underscore, where we post about all of our episodes and send out as much encouragement as we can on there. Again, we appreciate you guys so much. You are so awesome. You are so loved. You are heard. You are worthy. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. Peace.